This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Sunday, November the 20th, 2011, and uh, just uh, less than 48 hours away from the actual 48th anniversary of the assassination of the 35th President of the United States, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. So tonight, of course, we dedicate the entire program to commemorating uh, that fateful day back November 22nd, 1963. Kennedy was in Texas on a political trip. He was there to smooth over frictions in the Democratic Party between liberals like Ralph Yarborough and Don Yarborough, uh, no relation, and uh, conservative uh, Democrat John Conley, of course, who was, uh, was governor. Uh, a little bit later in the program, we're going to talk with Philip Nelson, who's written a book uh, in which he points the finger at the vice president at the time, Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ, as being the man who really orchestrated uh, this assassination. And uh, he'll tell us exactly why he believes that's the case. Phil Nelson, the author of LBJ, the mastermind of the JFK assassination, uh, promises to be an absolutely compelling, uh, riveting um, hour, a discussion with Phil Nelson coming up. Uh, but first, uh, someone who I think, and I've, I've talked to many, many JFK researchers and authors over the year, I've never encountered someone who has such an encyclopedic knowledge of the events, the players, uh, the aftermath, the Warren Commission, uh, and so forth. Uh, he's probably written more uh, and archived more information about the JFK assassination than any man alive today. Walt Brown has a Ph.D. in history from the University of Notre Dame. He's a former special agent of the Justice Department, a longtime researcher of the Warren Commission and the assassination of John F. Kennedy. He's also the editor of JFK Deep Politics and the author of several books on the subject, including The People vs. Lee Harvey Oswald, Treachery in Dallas, Referenced Index Guide to the Warren Commission, JFK Assassination Quiz Book, and The Warren Omission. His most ambitious project was the Global Index to the JFK Assassination, a CD-ROM of 2,400 pages, which indexed not just the Warren Commission, but also the House Subcommittee on Assassination and 100-plus of the best-known JFK books. 
There are 17,185 names and over 4 million references. It's cross-referenced by 175 categories. So if you can't remember the name of a particular Secret Service agent, uh, you look through the alphabetic listing of the hundreds of, uh, of uh, Secret Service agents listed, find the name, and then go to that listing in the index. Uh, having said all that, Walt Brown, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm terrific. It's good to be on with you. A little bit of light reading, 2,400 pages. Why well, would... that's the little guy. Yeah, you're working on even something bigger. Yeah, I'm working on what I call the Master Analytic Chronology. Uh, it starts in 1823 when the first Kennedy who came to the United States was born. Now, they anglicized his name. His name was O apostrophe C-A-I something Kennedy. Uh, and he became Kennedy, like we know. Um, so it starts in 1823 with his birth. He died on November 22nd My in, 18, word. in 1858. And then it goes right up to, I think the last entry was the Jacqueline Kennedy tape presentation that was on two months ago in September, uh, and the death of uh, Joan and Ted Kennedy's daughter, Kara. And that project has passed 20,000 pages. My word. At what point did this take over your life, Walt, if I can, if I can <laughs> use that phrase? Well, uh, about 2005, uh, I had done a lot of work, and the result of it was the one book in the, that didn't get mentioned called The Guns of Texas Are Upon You, kind of hitching into the LBJ mania in, in its own way. Um, and I had been working eight years with a with a fellow who was a Dallas police officer on November 22nd, and he had created a massive genealogical base uh, that he left to me, uh, and I went to work using that as a starter. And he he passed away in 2005. So since about been a, it's been a little over six years, um, and there have been 24 days that I didn't work on it. 24 days since? In six years. My word. <laughs> now, that's, I mean, today's a Sunday, it's November 20th, but I was working on it today. No and doubt. Thanksgiving, in a couple of days from now, celebrated in the U.S., I'll be at it until I go to a friend's for dinner, maybe 4 o'clock. Because... The, the trick is when you have that much material, every time I put a new bit of data in there, I have to recall from memory. Does this corroborate something else that's in there? Does it contradict something? And if so, where? And then you got to start pointing arrows. And if I walked away from it for 60 days, I'd have to read the whole thing start to finish. Just here, to be sure I got it right. Well, here we are 48 years later. I made my first trip uh, to uh, Daly Plaza uh, back in August. I was down uh, down there shooting some episodes for the TV show. And uh, I'm, I'm sure you hear this all the time, too. I mean, you, you, we, we see it on television so many times. But when you get there and, and you see how tiny an area Absolutely. It, it was by the time he turned onto Commerce Street, you know, there's the book depository building. And just, you know, a couple of yards down the road... There is a little uh, plaque on the ground uh, commemorating the spot, supposedly, you know, where he received the, the, the fatal head wound. I couldn't believe. So 
there I am on uh, on Commerce Street. And, Elm Street. Uh, I'm sorry. Elm Street. Um, well, Commerce is the, the furthest one south. Right. As you okay, but okay. Right. 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 So it ca- crosses Commerce, right? Well, you've got three streets that go under the underpass. Right. The one that passes the depository is Elm. Right. Then you got Main Street, which is straight. Right. And then the other one that bends further south is Commerce. Ah, okay. So there I am on Elm. Right. I look over, back over my right shoulder, and you can see, of course, the, the window, the sixth floor of the, yep. uh, the, 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 the uh, school book depository building. And you see those trees in front of the window. And someone says to me, well, look, that completely would have obscured the shot. But I'm saying, yeah, but that's 48 years ago. Those trees well, would have been actually, much smaller. And they said, no, no, they, they cut those trees years back. Ago. Hmm? It's actually 20 years ago. Because uh, when Oliver Stone filmed uh, his movie in Dealey Plaza, he had those trees cut back to look exactly like 1963. That's, That's what someone told me, yes. Yeah. So, And my experience down there, just for what it's worth, besides the realization, oh my gosh, it's so small, um, so many people, tourists, We'll, we'll walk toward the scene. They look up at the window, and then they look down to grassy knoll. Then they look up at the window, and then they walk down to the grassy knoll. Right, right. But it's 495 feet from the corner of the book depository to the center stanchion of the underpass, and that's a seven-eight iron shot. What it got, you know, in golf. Mm. It's, and and. I always reference this to, to show you incompetence. Uh, a man named Walter Craig, who was the head of the American Bar Association in 1964, was the, so to speak, people's stand-in for the Warren Commission, just to make sure that all the right questions got asked. Well, he was only there for the testimony of six different witnesses. And when the driver of the car testified, Bill Greer, he said, I turned a corner, we went you know, down a ways, I heard what I thought was a pop, might be a flat tire, blah, blah, blah. And, that, you know, the underpass gets mentioned. And when, when it's Craig's turn to talk, he said, now, when you saw this underpass ahead, how far away would you say well, it was? Maybe a mile? Mm-hmm. And you don't have to read any further than that to understand how, <laughs> how flawed the investigation is. Yes. Because, because on the day those questions were asked, which was in the middle of March in 64, the Warren Commission had not been to Dewey Plaza yet. Oh, my word. Well, the but FBI did their own investigation. Place. Hoover did his own investigation, and, and I guess the Warren Commission pretty well just took that lock, stock, and barrel and ran with it. Yeah. Well, they were pretty much told to do it. Right. Uh, odd question. Who paid for the Warren Commission? That's a great question. They were paid for out of presidential funds. Is that even legal? No, because they were created by a presidential executive order. And it's therefore mandated that they're paid for out of presidential funds. Bit of a conflict of interest there, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, Brown. When, when well, the suspect is paying for the cops, uh, or one of the suspects. Yes. I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, there's so many, so much ground here to cover, obviously, and uh, there's so many uh, books coming out. Uh, yep. uh, LBJ, the mastermind of the JFK assassination. Yep. Uh, uh, um, Bar McClellan's book about LBJ. Joseph Farrell wrote a book about LBJ's involvement. Uh, well, let me just ask you about that straight away. Was LBJ involved? Uh, I would say absolutely, but I don't think he was 
quite as active as some people uh, would make him to be. Um, certainly the characterizations that Mr. Nelson presented, um, which the footnotes indicate are, are borrowed heavily from LBJ's more serious biographers, guys that have worked 20 years on it, um, they're accurate. And, and LBJ wanted to be president. Um, I don't think at the end of the day that LBJ would have had the, the courage, ordinarily I'd use another word, but more on radio, um, I don't think he would have had the courage to do it on his own. At the same time, I don't believe it could have happened without some person getting to him and saying, are you good with this? And he would have said, partner, I'm great with it. Because once they knew they had the key to the city, then it was a turkey shoot. Yes. They weren't going to get caught. And and he, he put together the Warren Commission, which in its own way is a dream team. Yeah. Dallas. Russell is, is the Senate oversight on the military and the CIA. John McCloy is the World Bank. The guy that exfiltrated a lot of the Nazis into the U.S.? Yes. Uh, with, with the help of Alan Dulles, yes. whom Kennedy had fired. Yes. Hale Boggs was the congressman from Clayshaw's district. Cokie that Roberts. It? Wasn't that Cokie Roberts' father? Yes. ABC News correspondent? Yes. Um, died mysteriously in a plane crash. And the person that drove him to the to the connecting flight, not the flight he died in, but the, the plane ride that took him out way out west, the person that dropped him off was a presidential intern named Bill Clinton. There you go. Interesting. Uh, Listen, Walt, we've got to take a time out. We'll come back. So much to discuss. Sure thing. And we will. He is the editor of JFK Deep Politics. And uh, I tell you, if anyone knows every... Uh, nook and cranny of the Warren Commission and uh, all of the, the, the details surrounding the JFK assassination as we commemorate the 48th an anniversary. This is the man, Walt Brown, stays with us. Here on The Conspiracy Show, back with more in a moment on AM 740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Walt Brown stays with us. He is the editor of JFK Deep Politics. We'll tell you how you can uh, uh, order that or get a hold of that. Also the author of a number of books on the subject, including The People vs. Lee Harvey Oswald, Treachery in Dallas, referenced Index Guide to the Warren Commission, JFK Assassination Quiz Book, and the Warren Omission. Um, and the guns of Texas are upon you. And the guns of Texas are upon you. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's actually the JFK Deep Politics Quarterly. And people ask how many times a year does it come out? <laughs> Four. Um, and if anybody does a, uh, an internet search for JFK Deep Politics Quarterly, all the information they need is there. Excellent. Okay, I'll link up to that on my website so people can just click and they'll be there. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, let me ask you, I'm, I'm standing in the, um, the the doorway, the archway there, uh, facing Elm uh, uh, okay. at the, uh, the the Texas School Book Depository. And uh, I'm remembering that famous AP photograph. Was it James Elkins? Yes. Which many have pointed to, 
there in the foreground, you see the presidential limo. Yep. In behind, you see a man who looks a lot like uh, Robin McNeil from the old Le McNeil Lair uh, hour on PBS, uh, a good Canadian boy, if, if I remember. Right. And next Robert to him, was there. yes, and next to him, or in, in the same doorway, is is someone who looks very, very much like Lee Harvey Oswald. And then you think, well, if that's the presidential limo passing the school, yeah, yes, because it looks like Kennedy is is uh, at that point grasping his neck. Yeah, that that picture was. Uh, supposedly matched up to the Zapruder frame 255. So if that's, if it is Oswald in the doorway, he would have had to have been a world-class sprinter to get up to the sixth floor <laughs> well, in time to fire. So is that Oswald in the doorway? I don't believe it is. Um, similarities, absolutely. Um, where I lose faith in the theory is that the, the bone structure in the man's face in the, in the picture looks much too much like Billy Lovelady. Mm -hmm. uh, and a number of people said, you know, yeah, I was standing there with, with Lovelady. And it, it's it's not like it's a, a brush-off deal because when they mentioned the Lovelady, you know, where do you, you were, if you were there, where do you think the shots came from? And he said, you know, down the street. Mm. So, you know, he wasn't he wasn't somebody that was trying to sell, sell Oswald to the people. Um Cameras will do strange things, and I got a lesson on that from a professional photographer who took me through a lot of the photographs that exist. Uh, and I'll give you, for instance, uh, the photograph of Oswald with the rifle. Yes. The, the famous photo that was on a cover of Life magazine. Right. Well, there's several different poses of that. No matter how many Marina tells you she, told, she took, there's a bunch of them. Um if you put a ruler, and it's easier to do it metric, actually, but if you put a ruler, the gun was 40.2 inches. Oswald was 5'10", and that makes him 70 inches. So the gun and Oswald should be a perfect 4 to 7 correspondence. Right. 40 inches. When you put a ruler on it, you discover that either the gun is 46 inches long or Oswald's only 5'3". Mm. And I, I, I showed it to somebody who's very competent with photography and he says that's called compression photos get pushed from top to bottom and i said what would that do to this picture and now i'm referring to the one you were talking about he says well it would squeeze the pixels together and he flipped through a book and he says here's the shirt that this guy said he was wearing on that day and that's what it looked like compressed you know billy lovelady right and there were a number of people who saw him there um and and the most amazing bit of testimony with regard to that individual is Marguerite Oswald, Lee's dear, dear departed mother. Mm -hmm. um, she swore up and down, that's my son in the photograph. And the Warren Commission said, please point to the man you think is your son. And she pointed to the fellow to the left of him with the suit on wearing a hat, holding uh, a baby. Uh, ha, ha. And she said, that's him holding the baby. Marina brought the baby down to watch the, the motorcade. Well, Marina was home. The baby was home. And Oswald didn't own a suit and a hat like that. There you go. But that... it, you know, it, it's one of these... People have written books based on a photograph. Yes, yes. Now, let me ask you about the other photo, you, with, with Oswald posing with the, uh, the, the uh, Kirkano right. rifle. 
And uh, of course, many theorists have said, well, the shadows don't line up, and, and right. that's and they've some that they've taken Os, uh, someone's uh, Oswald's head and put it on another body. Why would Oswald be posing with the uh, the murder weapon? Why would he order it, you know, through the mail, registered mail? <laughs> it just doesn't well, make there's sense. There's all manner of problems with what you're talking about. Um, as far as the photograph itself, I was in that backyard. It'll be. 18 years, two days from now. I was there November 22nd of 1993, the 30th anniversary. I was in that backyard, and I was holding what's called a club, the thing you put in your car so it doesn't get stolen, Right. lock up the wheel, and I was posing like Oswald. And the person that took my photograph kept telling me, just you know, move a little bit this way, sort of shadow. He had the body shadow identical to the body shadow in the, in the photographs that you're talking about. But my facial shadow was just kind of a blur to the right side of my face. It wasn't that little Hitler mustache that appears identical in all the photos. Right. So, sure, there, there's questions. The, <laughs> the unexpected oddity that came out of it is in the background. The, the stairs that they went up to their apartment, Yes. they were just being replaced at that point in time. So I went out front, photos of the pile of steps being thrown away, I took one for myself, and I watched while the rest of them were put in the garbage. Interesting. So the last surviving stare is, is mine. As far as why he did it, he, and probably he had help with it, he was building a resume. And, and no matter how you slice the pie, if, he, if Khrushchev had been shot in the back seat of a car on November 22, 1963, Oswald's resume would have convicted him for that killing. You know, got a phony discharge from the Marines, right. ran off to Russia. Right. You know, mar crack shot, which he wasn't. No. Uh, you know, there's just all kinds of things that go into this resume that make no sense. And why you would be photographed with that thing and why you would leave those photos laying around after you allegedly attempted the murder of an icon in general, in, in, in Dallas, General Walker, makes absolutely no sense. Absolutely no sense. Go uh, back to the um, the window, the sixth floor sure. window. And unless you go up there, you, you, know, you don't realize, I mean, it's not a window that you just throw open the sash and you stand there. I mean, you've got to be down on your belly. Yep. And, again, you've got you to point that rifle out and turn it around to the right, and then you've got that tree to contend with, and it's a, you know, it's a bolt action, single bolt action. Yep. Uh, I don't care if you are, you know, a marksman. A marksman's not going to make that shot. Well, so one, one person who was a master expert with a weapon was able to replicate, but of course not out of that building, hmm. from a tower the same height at a moving object. Right. Um, Anybody that knows anything about weapons will tell you two facts. One, to be good with a weapon, you have to practice constantly. It's not like softball where you pick up the bat in April and you get two hits that night. you got to practice constantly. Uh, and secondly, a rifle has to be sighted in. Now, Oswald supposedly took a package into the book depository. Nobody told the Warren Commission that he did that. It only exists in one place, and that's on a sheriff's affidavit, made out by the guy who drove him in that day, Wesley Frazier. 
It was a smallish package, which meant if it's a rifle, it's dismantled. You put that thing together, it's useless. You have to sight it in. You have to point exactly at a target, fire it, and see where your bullet hits. Did it hit where you were aiming? No, it was high and to the right. You adjust the sight. You fire again. It's like, it's like bracketing with a mortar. Right. And uh, that, that's why when you go down south down there and you see all the pickup trucks with the gun racks in them, it's to keep the guns steady so that once they are sighted in, they stay sighted in. Right, right. And if you say to somebody, yeah, I took this rifle apart, put it in a bag, took it to a building, put it back together, and made three perfect shots, and they're going to say, wait a minute, when did you sight it in? And that's the 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 biggest problem. I mean, sure ah, mere details, Walt. Details, details. Walt Brown is with us. Uh, Walt, the true or false? There was a paraffin wax test performed right. on Oswald, and the results were buried uh, for some nine or ten years. Correct. The paraffin wax test results were. Well, they were sent to the Oak Ridge Labs in Tennessee, where the United States one of the three places we did the atomic research uh, because they had to subject them to some kind of neutron test. What happened was the hands tested in a positive manner, but the, the cheek wax did not. And the, the thinking was that if, if you're standing there working a bolt-action rifle three times in five and a half seconds, you're sitting in a cloud of smoke, which you would be. But a nitrates test only measures certain things. And if you're handling book cartons that have printer's ink on them, you're going to test positive. So that would explain the hands. Well, that and the fact that he was fingerprinted three times before he was given the paraffin test. Ah, interesting. And I, I got a feeling that, that when, even if they allowed him to wash his hands after he was fingerprinted, he didn't scrub like a doctor would on his way into surgery. You know, some, some, some cop was sitting there tapping his foot saying, come on, buddy. And he just, you know, threw, you know, lick spittle on his fingers and wiped his hands off. Um, but he was covered with fingerprinting. And, and that's another, you know, mitigating factor. And, again, it, it, doesn't, get, it doesn't get addressed. Um, I spent the last week Marina Oswald's testimony footnoting it 337 times for, for the chronology. And one of the questions I asked her was, when was the first time you remember seeing the rifle in the apartment? And she said, I don't know, I must have opened the door in, in, in one of the closets or in Lee's little room, and, and there it was. She couldn't speak English. She had no money. She couldn't drive. She's in that apartment 24-7. The question is, how did it get in the door? Hmm. And what you said before about this, there was a tremendous, a perfect paper trail of Oswald ordering that gun in March. Klein's, Klein's Sporting Goods in Chicago still had the envelope with the airmail stamp on it. Did they keep that? Because the deposit they made immediately after selling the Oswald gun was $13,000. This gun cost twenty. Does that mean they kept 650 airmail stamped envelopes for each bank deposit? Hmm. It's, it's, it's absurd. And the gun was addressed to A. Heidel, post office box 2915. The only person allowed to pick up mail at that post office box was Lee Oswald. 
And all, when a gun comes, they're going to put a card in the box. You have to take that card to the desk and say, I would like to collect this, please. And the box is Oswald, and the package is coming to Heidel. How do you do that? Worse still, the pistol was shipped by Railway Express. <laughs> Railway Express can't deliver to post office boxes. So where did it go? None of these things addressed in the Warren Commission. No. And the company that sold the pistol demanded 50% up front. Oswald supposedly sent $10 on a $30 gun. Well, who paid the other 20 There you go. Well, the same $20 people... $20 unaccounted for. <laughs> the same people who paid to repatriate him from Russia, I guess. Well, the State Department did that. Yeah, well... And, and amazingly enough, the person that made the decision to do that, uh, the name was Frances Knight. It's a woman, Frances, C-E-S. She was a fanatic, rabid anti-communist and routinely refused Americans' passports if, if, you know, if, if they wore a red tie too often, for God's sakes. So how did, how did she get the idea that he should get his passport back? Let's talk about that when we, when we come back. We'll talk sure. about uh, Oswald coming back from uh, Russia. Why was he over there? Is there a connection uh, to the U-2 spy plane? We'll find out when Walt Brown joins us on the other side, here on The Conspiracy Show. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Walt Brown, a former special agent of the Justice Department with us, longtime researcher of the Warren Commission and, of course, the assass assassination of JFK. And uh, that's what we're commemorating here tonight. 48 years later, uh, less two days. Uh, Walt Oswald. True or false, was he sent to Russia to out the U-2 spy plane and, and to out Francis Gary Powers? Didn't, didn't Powers name Oswald as the rat? Well, he suspected it, and it's, it's, it's a perfect suspicion, uh, simply because Oswald was knowledgeable with respect to the U-2. Uh, of course, why and how he was knowledgeable makes no sense. I don't know of any Marine training course that teaches you to guide airplanes at 90,000 feet. Marines are the guys that run ashore at the beach ahead of the Navy or the other fellows. Um, if I had to explain why the U-2 was shot down, I would say that it was something much bigger than Lee Oswald, and the absolute hope was to destroy the Paris summit meeting that was coming up, and it worked. Right. In other words, the military-industrial complex yeah, didn't want was, Eisenhower getting together with Khrushchev and thawing the Cold War. Sure. So they and, they, and embarrass when, the, they embarrass they uh, embarrass the U.S. by oh badly yes. And but when when Eisenhower made that speech on television, his farewell speech, and he said the military-industrial complex, it was originally written to say the military-industrial congressional complex, mm. and it's still with us. Yeah. If, I, if Oswald was sent to Russia, and I think there's a reasonable chance that, that and I'm going to qualify this to say, somebody was sent to Russia, uh, it was cannon fodder. Because the KGB had to follow him around, they had to listen in. He and Marina unplugged everything imaginable electric in their apartment 
And then they went and looked at the electric meter, and it was still turning. Interesting. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's all you need to know about right, that. Right. But uh, regardless, regardless, I mean, it's pretty clear. And, I, and did they not reproduce the check in the Warren Commission that was used basically to, to bring Oswald back to the States? Well, it, it, it was, I don't know if they reproduced the check itself, but it was made abundantly clear that he was loaned $435.71. Uh, what's also unusual about that is the way it was paid back. In his first payment, he paid something like $15.71, and then he paid off the 420 Anybody else would pay it off 10 20 30 and then at the very end, they'd hit you with the 71 cents. What's the significance? It's just, it's ass backwards, pardon me. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't nope. make any sense. It, it's, it's, almost, it's almost a signature in a sense. And it, it's the same kind of thing, and I was, I was speaking about this to a fellow on the telephone two hours ago. When Oswald applied for his passport, he got a hardship discharge from the Marines, which is not easy to come by, particularly when he'd been court-martialed twice. He gets a hardship discharge, and he gets a passport within the same 24-hour period. His father was listed as born in 1898, and his mother was listed as born in 1901. When he came back and wanted to leave again to go to Mexico or Cuba or God knows where, mm -hmm. they applied for another passport. His father got three years older, and his mother got six years younger, and he misspelled her name. And didn't he get shorter or taller as well? Oh, his he's got six different eye colors. His height changes demonstrably. His weight changes demonstrably. Uh, and that, of course, leads to the, the theory that there, that there were two guys. Uh, and the only, the, the, or the best input I can give you on that is that the Lee Oswald, the historical Lee Oswald, could never have learned the Russian language. Not if he started studying in the Mesozoic era. <laughs> Believe me when I tell you that, because I've been to Russia. I married a Russian woman, mm -hmm. and she has since gone back, thank you, God. <laughs> uh, but I worked at learning the language, and it is incredibly difficult. And the Mayo Clinic did a study of Lee Oswald, because you look at his basic writings, and you can find 150 words that are so horribly misspelled, including his own name. Mm including his mother's name. And they said, this guy has got such a massive language disability. Now, I've never come across somebody who was not fluent in their native language, in this case, English, but could become fluent without any known instruction in a very difficult foreign language. Hmm. And while I was married, I had my wife look at Oswald's Russian writings. She said, that's better than most Russians can do. And she showed me I knew enough Russian to understand what she was telling me. Uh, because in Russia, to get any number of jobs nowadays, you have to sit for five examinations and prove your ability in the Russian language. Most Russian people are lazy speakers. And when I was there and I spoke Russian, the more educated ones can understand what I was saying, but the peasants, uh-uh. Mm. You know, and it was, you know, Amerikansky. And when I realized how difficult the Russian language truly is. And I learned, I had to learn two languages on the fly to get a PhD. And there was nothing to it. Russian's another whole story. Believe me when I tell you. 
So let me ask you this. Uh, I, I mean, the, the Lollapalooza question for me is always, you know, was Oswald, could he have been, um, uh, you know, a, a mind-controlled patsy? Was he, what, did he think he was part of a sting operation to prevent the assassination? But before I get to that, I want to I wanna ask you, about the prison transfer and 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 uh, you know being shot by Jack Ruby, a, a friend of mine who's a longtime JFK assassination uh, researcher, uh, said he spoke to the photographer who took uh, many of those photographs. He was present there in the courthouse, and and he said the thing that struck him was after that gut shot, no blood, no blood. What do you make of that? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. Um... I was a pretty good shot, by the way, in the Justice Department. If I, and I've seen Oswald's autopsy pictures. He was shot from such a close distance that the, 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 the powder and whatnot, you know, the, everything that came out of the gun, the heat, the blast, the, everything, literally seared his skin. So it could very easily be uh, that, that the bullet went in and that the powder just... just Cauterized the Almost wound. like welded his skin back together. Yeah, cauterized it, yeah. Uh, because if you've seen any of the Oswald autopsy photos, there's this, uh, it's it's the size of a mm, baseball, softball, and it's just, there's there's no entry wound. It, it's just like somebody, uh, you know, peanut buttered over your body, and there's this circle. Wow. Um, so that's, and, and it hit everything imaginable on the way through, and it lodged against the back of his skin on the opposite side, on his right side. Um, what Ruby was doing there, I don't know. What he didn't realize was he didn't have any kind of grounding in Texas law. How do you mean? I, I think Ruby had in his head, you know, when, when he saw Oswald, hey, I can shoot this guy and say, you know, it just came over me. I shot him. He's going to get a sentence of five years for manslaughter. He's going to be out on the street again in three, and he's going to have the best strip joint on the planet. But in Texas law, when you reach in your gun for that pocket, in your pocket for that gun, that becomes premeditated murder. That's not manslaughter anymore. It's manslaughter if you hit a guy to get him off your back and he falls down the stairs and dies. But there's more. Ruby committed premeditated murder. Sure. They were, they were going to juice him. But, but he died a free man. But there's more to Ruby than just the owner of a strip bar, isn't there? I mean, this guy was, from what I've heard, it, was he not connected? I mean, I don't mean wise guy connected. In a, he was connected in a small way. You know, he was connected to them, but how much they were connected to him remains a question. Because when when Ruby pulled the trigger, he was in debt, tens of thousands of dollars to all kinds of people, and there aren't many mobsters to go Chapter 13 in bankruptcy. Hmm. I mean, that's a rarity, because usually they, they take care of their own. Well, somebody forgot to take care of him. Because he, he had a bunch of cash from the weekend in his pocket when he was arrested. That money was <laughs> immediately surrendered to the Internal Revenue for his tax debts. And that famous Ruby uh, interview where he says, you know, this this goes far, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but far deeper than you can ever imagine, and it's not what you think. What do you think he was alluding to? I think he was alluding to the fact that he wanted a microphone in front of him again. I'm not sure he knew the dynamic fully. I, 
I put a hypothesis at the tail end of treachery in Dallas. And basically what, what I think happened was that Ruby and Tippett both, each in their own way, was under the impression that Fidel Castro was going to be killed on November 22nd. And that Tippett was going to execute Castro's assassin. And if he failed, Ruby was the backup. Hmm. And it turns out, oops, it wasn't Castro that got killed. But you're hanging out there in the wind because you're in the starting lineup. Who uh, killed Tippett? But again, I, can I prove it? No. Who it's killed? It's a hypothesis. Who shot and killed Tippett? Most likely Oswald. Getting away. Hmm. He knew it. He, the critical thing in that whole scenario is he went home to get the pistol. If he had known what he was going to be alleged doing at 1230, he would have had that pistol with him. Right. Because if, if he could sneak the rifle into the building, he could sure sneak the, the pistol in. And you're not going to shoot your way out of the depository with a rifle and one bullet left. So he, if, he, if he knew he was going to be an assassin at 1230 that afternoon, he would have had the pistol with him. No. He goes home. First of all, he gets on a bus. That's not a plan. Changes to a taxi, gets home. When a taxi gets there, the taxi takes him six blocks away from his house. Now, if he's on the run, you'd want the taxi to pull into the driveway. It didn't. He was afraid of an ambush. He got out six blocks away. Spec the whole thing out. It's clean. And while he's inside, a police car pulls up and honks the horn. And the woman who saw the, the police car and heard the horn looked out and gave the wrong number of the car. Said, I think it was number 107 when Tippett's car was number 10. Um, and I've always said, you know, because they didn't believe her. And I said, what that means is if you forget a phone number or get a phone number wrong, the telephone was never invented. <laughs> because it's absurd yeah, logic. Yeah, it is. You know, a police car pulled up and honked the horn. What's the number? Well, I'm not sure. Well, then it didn't happen. Right. It's ridiculous. Why, why is it honking its horn? Obviously, to get somebody's attention inside. Yeah. And and Tippett was not where he was supposed to be. He was parked. At 1255, Tippett was parked in a Glocko gas station lot, which was the last stop on the bus on the bus route that Lee Oswald got on the bus. And it's where he would have gotten off. When that bus got to that point, nobody got off and turned around and headed back into town. Tippett took off up to a, uh, a record shop not far from the Texas Theater, barged his way through the record store, the top ten record store, and made a, attempted to make a phone call to somebody that didn't go through, insofar as we know. He put the phone down at 111, got in his car, and he was dead four minutes later. He drove to his own death. But he knew he knew right where to go. Exactly, he he was driving to destiny, and and why why anybody would pull over somebody walking along forty five minutes after the president of the United States has been shot dead in the street? The last method of escape is going to be walking along with your hands in your pockets on a sunny day. They didn't barricade any streets. They didn't close any highways. They didn't shut the bus stations. They didn't close the airports. The U.S. border was sealed that night by the head of the Secret Service. That's the only protective action taken. 
All right, we'll take another time out. Uh, Walt Brown sure. is with us. And uh, we are commemorating the 48th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy right here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. My name is Richard Serrett. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome back to our JFK assassination anniversary special. Walt Brown uh, is with us. Uh, Walt, again, tell us how to get uh, a copy of uh, JFK Deep Politics Quarterly. Well, uh, again, if you just do a, an Internet search, a Google search, whatever, for JFK slash Deep Politics Quarterly, uh, or Walt Brown. There's a few Walt Browns. You've you got a couple of crackpots in there on different subjects. Uh, you'll find it. And what I hope, what I would hope more than anything from your listeners, uh, the people that have an interest in this subject, is that two years from this week, when this chronology is done and available on CD-ROM, because it'll, it'll wind up about, I'm going to say, 28,000 pages, if they realize, oh, I can't read this thing, I would hope they would send a donation, whether it's a quarter or a dime, so that I can get as many of these as possible into libraries in the English-speaking world so that this won't be forgotten at least for another 50 years. People are going to have to stop and say, wait a minute, 28,000 pages? There's got to be something in there. And believe me, there is. It's too bad Walt Brown wasn't on the Warren Commission. That's all I can say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Warren Commission stuff was 17,709 pages, so I beat them about two and a half months ago. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, and you actually went and spoke to some of the witnesses, too. Oh, I made made my rounds. uh, (laughs) And it's been an odyssey. It really is. And one of the appendices uh, to the chronology itself is my own little JFK odyssey, which... I mean, this, this whole Russian thing started with me making a bet with uh, Vincent Boyosi that I, I could learn more Russian than he could. And I'd, I'd meet him in Sevastopol, and we'd, uh, we'd have a chat in Russian a year later. And Vincent, Vincent, of course, wrote the book in which he basically affirmed the findings of the Warren Commission. Yes, and <laughs> he insisted on the, the findings and then went on to essentially say, this fact right here, uh, whatever it is, take any, you know, the guy in the doorway. No, Oswald was on the sixth floor, so that can't be on it. That can't be the guy in the door. Forget about any other reason that it could have been Billy Lovelady. It had to be Billy Lovelady because the shooter could only have been Oswald and he was on the sixth floor. Yeah, that's um, circular logic. So even if, if Oswald's mother had pointed and said, that's my son, you see the little birthmark right there that only I know about, it wouldn't have mattered because Oswald was on the sixth floor. But how does Vincent convince himself, uh, you know, that the, that the magic bullet theory, which, you know, the, those, the, the garrison, uh, you know, spiel in, in, in yeah. Stone's JFK is just, is just sublime. Uh, I used to use the, that clip on my show all the time, but it's, it's too long. But, but how does anyone convince themselves in that magic bullet theory? Well, be, because for Oswald to do it, you have to have the magic bullet. That's one reason. The second reason, and this is going to sound strange, but it's patriotism. 
Yeah, rally around the flag. Absolutely. My country, right or wrong, but right or wrong, my country. And if, if seven eminent men say that Oswald did it by himself, by God, he must have. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm running into a lot of that, uh, the TV show, I've, I've done a number of episodes on various, uh, you know, parts of the 9-11 uh, terrorist attacks, and, and, and uh, each episode we, we have a, a skeptic on. And um, one of these... <laughs> not hard to find. No. One of these skeptics happened to be, you know, the managing editor of a pretty prestigious national newspaper here in town. And um, I asked him, I said, well, what about this, 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 and this? And he says, well, I just trust the people who wrote the, the war or the, uh, the, the uh, 9-11 Commission report. Sure. So you could substitute that for the Warren yeah. Commission. But, and I said to him, well, but even the people, even the, the, the senior counsel for the 9-11 Commission report has now said that this was a complete whitewash that the, it, that we it were goes lied deeper to deeper than that it yeah. goes deeper than that so but, they want they want an image of the country to be a flag and an eagle and they they just they're afraid to admit that maybe there's some dirty garbage under the rug yeah well they got the certain eagle correct i think uh, yeah and i'm convinced i am convinced one third of american history is classified and they and that they still have stuff in the vaults from the War of 1812. I, I, an historian told me, and I don't know how you, you're, you're able, he's able to, to, to learn this. I mean, uh, it's like the people who say, you know, 60% of crimes go unreported. I don't know how, hey, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. But he, this historian told me 50% of all government documents, it doesn't matter what department, 50% are classified. Well, a, a very strange thing happened four or five years ago. They re the government reclassified tens of thousands of documents, and there were Kennedy documents among them that were reclassified, stuff that had been released that you could get through the archives on the Freedom of Information Act, no problem, obtained legally. If you still have those documents in your possession, you're committing a felony now mm. because it's classified. If you write to them to say, look, I want to be in compliance with the law, tell me which ones I have to send back, they're going to say we can't tell you because they're classified. Oh my lord! <laughs> That's, I mean, that in itself is a story. Uh, and and to Bugliosi and and everyone else who believes, if Oswald did it by himself, why is there one piece of paper being withheld? Much less a National Archives full of stuff. What's that one paper that you? No, like I'm to... saying why yeah. is there? Oh, I see. One? Why is there even one? Right. Exactly. Because exactly. they, initially they put away 357 cubic feet of material under seal. Hmm. And then they had another committee which investigated, found a fourth shot, but by law they had to lock up all of this stuff because it's a congressional committee for 50 years. Hmm. And then you got a review board as a result of Oliver Stone's. I mean, the, the House Select Committee came out of when when Geraldo Rivera showed the Zapruder film on TV. Right. People saw that and said, ah, he was shot in the front. Yep. End of story. And the review board in the 1990s came out of Oliver Stone's movie because people saw it and said, whoa, this has got something to it. And Stone and his screenwriter, Zachary Squar, wrote a book, a thick book, footnoting every sentence in that movie. This is the source of that story. This is the source of this interview with so-and-so, document number such and such. Let me, ask, 
Let me ask you about the JFK movie because there's sure. that famous scene where they lift the fingerprints, put it on the uh, the the Kirkano, the humanitarian weapon they call it. Right. Uh, they 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 lift those fingerprints from the morgue. In other words, they take Oswald's hand while he's in the morgue and they put no, his finger. They did that happened in the mortuary. In the mortuary. Yes. Sorry. So, I mean, is that, do we know, is, is that speculation? Is that no, no. poetic license, uh, artistic license? What is that? The mortician that? was a man named Paul Grudy, G-R-O-O-D-Y, and he testified that he had to wash, he had to clean fingerprint ink off of ink, uh, Oswald, the dead Oswald's hand. Now, he was fingerprinted while dead, and the card is unsigned because he's dead. Obviously, he's not going to sign it. Right. Um, but there is strong, very strong suspicion. Again, you're not going to be able to prove it unless the guy that put the thing in Oswald's hands comes out and says, I did it. And whoever that guy is or was, he's living now or was living to the end of his days on a government pension. Mm. I mean, think about it. Yeah. Except for 30 minutes from the time Kennedy's body left the hospital, Except for 30 minutes, he's been on government property. He was put on a government airplane, put in a government ambulance, taken to a government hospital, taken back to the White House, taken to the Capitol, 30 minutes in a church for his funeral mass, back in government vehicles and buried in government property. And the last place in the world you're going to get somebody exhumed is Arlington. Yeah. One final time out, Walt, we'll come back. I, I, I have to get to the Lollapalooza question, and that is, what was Oswald's involvement? Did he think he was part of a, a sting operation to prevent the assassination? Was he a mind control patsy? What? We'll find out. Walt Brown stays with us here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740 Zuma Radio. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Walt Brown, wow, what an encyclopedic knowledge of the JFK assassination. And he is the editor of JFK Deep Politics Quarterly and uh, knows just about everything there is to know about the Warren Commission and the JFK assassination. Uh, Walt, let me ask you the question that I've been dying to ask you since we began the, uh, the, the interview, and that is, what was Oswald's involvement? Did he, did he think he was part of some sting operation to prevent the assassination of the president? Or did he, did he believe he was going to be the trigger man? What, what was it? Well, I, I don't think, first of all, I don't think he had any, any notion that he would have been good enough to be the trigger man. And, as you mentioned before, the humanitarian weapon. I've got one of those. And I was a I was a master expert at the Justice Department. And it, 
if you fired a gun up in the air, chances of only 50-50, the bullet's going to come down. <laughs> uh, I, my suspicion, and this, this goes back a ways, is that Oswald created the whole Fair Play for Cuba, Heidel, all of that, to make himself look pro-Castro. You know, to convince anybody that was listening that he was Fidel's man in Dallas uh, or, or New Orleans. Right. But he, he distributed literature in both towns. Sure. His, his Dallas involvement is little known, but it did happen. Um, I think he fell in with a crowd that said, listen, Kennedy's coming to Texas. The cabinet's going to be in Japan. We've got him surrounded by our people. Let's throw a scare into him. Let's fire a shot out into the green lawn where nobody's going to be because nobody was supposed to be out there in the, the, in the plaza. Fire a shot out there. The Secret Service will cover him up. They'll rush him to the airport. Look, get him to the LBJ ranch. He'll be safe. He's going to be surrounded by Connolly, Johnson, the whole, the whole Texas circle. The thing is going to track back to this pro-Cuban guy named Heidel, who bought the gun, who, as Oswald worked in the book department, Cuba did this to you, Mr. Kennedy. Are you going to let him get away with it? No. We're going to bomb the hell out of him. We're going to bomb him back into the Stone Age. We gave him chances. One too many. I don't get mad. I get even. And at the end of the day, Oswald would have been in this fairy tale, Oswald would have been emerged as a hero because, you know, we would have taken care of Cuba and he was the guy that made it happen. And while he's doing his part, other people pulled the triggers and all of a sudden he heard sirens and, and as you saw in, in Oliver Stone's movie, Roy truly comes running up and says, President's been shot. Do you remember that scene? Yes. Okay. Here's the here's the classic question about that scene. What would have happened if Truly didn't recognize that guy? Yeah. When the cop says, does he work here? Yeah. The president's been shot. What if the guy didn't work there? Nobody's ever asked that question. That's an obvious question, and you're right. No one's ever asked it. Um, because those are the ones that never get asked. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's like Noah's Ark. We don't know which animals didn't get there because they didn't get there. Right. Um, and it's like that historian story we talked about. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I don't think he was in, in any kind of abort mission because the easiest thing to do would have been run out in the road screaming. That's all you would have had to do. Right. I mean, that, that's the easiest thing in the world to abort. Secret Service would have been all over Kennedy, halfway up Houston Street. End of story. Um... Uh, as far as mind control goes, I'm not sure, I'm not convinced that mind control was that far advanced at that point in time. In Hollywood, sure. But in reality, I don't know. Because they were still playing with LSD and seeing what it would do. Right, right. At that time. And yeah. LSD was legal at that time until 1967. Well, I think they may have gotten it right with Sirhan. <laughs> they may have. <laughs> uh, but A little again, that's five years later. Yeah. And it, it's close in. Uh, and uh, Sarhan didn't kill him. No, 
Not, not when 12 witnesses say he was in front of Bobby at all times. Five feet away, and the shot was fired from an inch and a half. Yeah, and we have those recordings, at least I 12 have, shots. I held both of those guns at the same moment. Really? The Ivor the Johnson? The gun and the Thane Caesar gun, yeah. The eight-shot Ivor yep. Johnson? Eight-shot Iverson that fired 14 bullets. Yeah. Have you talked to Rosie Greer? No. Oh, because I mean... No, Jerry Ray. Okay. And I've, I've got a connection, possibly... To Sirhan, but my interest is John Kennedy. Yeah, not nine yeah. eleven. Not Bo- I met what? Bobby Kennedy. You did. And uh, what a man! I mean, it was two, three minutes, and there was only three of us together. One of his staff, him, and me. And I swear he was nine feet tall, and I was battered with waves of energy. You know, I was take. I, I've been. I took a little heat for this. I mean, not my era. I'm, I'm forty seven. So, but I, I, based on what I read and everything I, that I know, I think. Given the chance, Bobby might have been a greater president than John F. Kennedy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because he, he had more concrete issues that he could deal with immediately. And the public was far more energized in 1968 than they were in 1961. Yeah. Um, uh, let's go back yeah, to Jack. Absolutely. Let's go back to Jack. Uh, shooters, how many and where do you think they were? My strongest suspicion is that there was at least one at the opposite end of the book depository. Because if you, next time you watch a Zapruder film, watch John Connolly after Kennedy is hit in the head. Connolly is shot a second time after Kennedy is hit in the head. When you see Kennedy driven back, count to one, and you'll see Connolly driven forward onto the floor. Mm. And it's it's he's in shock, so it's not like he's reacting to any kind of stimulus except a bullet, the energy of a bullet. Yeah, he's saying to myself, "Hey, it wasn't supposed to happen this way." Because he he's holding on to that hat long after he was shot with the magic bullet, and right. that the magic bullet severed the nerve that would have allowed him to hold the hat. Right. Uh, and of course, I you're not going to do an assassination like that. From one location, triangulation. Got to, yeah, to some extent, triangulation. Uh, people have said you know, the second floor window at a Daltex building, you can't see your target from there because it's going downhill. That's the other thing people don't realize: Dealey Plaza, it goes downhill. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a ski slope, but it's downhill. Right. And the Secret Service car, which was ten inches higher than the President's car, is up above it. And there's guys standing up on the sides, and this guy's sitting up on the top back seats. You would have had to be on the fifth floor of the Daltex building. So that open window by the fire escape that people have believed in for years, it's a fairy tale. Uh, somewhere up high. And the shot that, that is under so much discussion entered below where it exited. It was rising when it went through his body, according to the House Select Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <laughs> given that, the only way it could have hit Connolly was if Kennedy had been tying his shoes. <laughs> because the bullet was rising. It would have gone out, sailing out over the car somewhere. Right. Um, you know, I mean, th- there's a thousand theories. Mrs. Kennedy stabbed him in the neck with the roses. She shot him. Right. You know, the, the driver of the car shot him. Right. He was Annie Oakley. Um... You know, sooner or later, you have to get back to fact-based stuff. 
What about Giancana's men, Nicoletti and others? I think they knew who, but I don't think they did it. Okay. Simply, be, simply because there was too much at risk. And, and I will, when you say, well, which group? I think it was, I think groups, plural, circled the wagons. Right. And right. someone in there reached out to LBJ and said, can we do this? Yeah, do just you give ha- me. Do you have our back? And he said, yes. Just give me plausible deniability. And then and supposedly he, he told his mistress the next day after tonight that SOB will never embarrass me again. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I've spent time with her, but her story underwent an evolution that, I don't know. She's always maintained that part of the story. Right. But how many people were there in 1993? And I've got her on tape. She told me there was eight men there. Right before she died, there was 40, including people who never would have been there. There you go. Hey, in a thousand years. It's like how many people were at the, uh, you know, when the Giants won the pennant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> listen, we're going to save a lot of this for the, uh, the 49th anniversary. I can see. There are still six million people alive that were at that game. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Walt Brown, editor of JFK Deep Politics Quarterly and the big Lollapalooza. Um, uh, Master Analytical Chronology. Yeah. Excellent. Look forward to that. And uh, let's speak next year, next uh, next November, Walt. Absolutely. Thanks for this. Real pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Was Lyndon Baines Johnson the real architect of the JFK assassination? Find out next. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Walt Brown, wow, what an encyclopedic knowledge of the JFK assassination. And he is the editor of JFK Deep Politics Quarterly and uh, knows just about everything there is to know about the Warren Commission and the JFK assassination. Uh, Walt, let me ask you the question that I've been dying to ask you since we began the, uh, the, the interview, and that is, what was Oswald's involvement? Did he, did he think he was part of some sting operation to prevent the assassination of the president? Or did he, did he believe he was going to be the trigger man? What, what was it? Well, I, I don't think, first of all, I don't think he had any, any notion that he would have been good enough to be the trigger man. And, as you mentioned before, the humanitarian weapon. I've got one of those. And I was a I was a master expert at the Justice Department. And it, if you fired a gun up in the air, the chances of only fifty fifty the bullet's going to come down. <laughs> uh, I my suspicion, and this this goes back a ways, is that Oswald created the whole Fair Play for Cuba, Heidel, all of that, to make himself look pro Castro. 
you know, to convince anybody that was listening that he was Fidel's man in Dallas uh, or, or New Orleans. Right. But he, he distributed literature in both towns. Sure. His, his Dallas involvement is little known, but it did happen. Um, I think he fell in with a crowd that said, listen, Kennedy's coming to Texas. The cabinet's going to be in Japan. We've got him surrounded by our people. Let's throw a scare into him. Let's fire a shot out into the green lawn where nobody's going to be because nobody was supposed to be out there in the the plaza. Fire a shot out there. The Secret Service will cover him up. They'll rush him to the airport. Get him to the LBJ ranch. He'll be safe. He's going to be surrounded by Connolly, Johnson, the whole the whole Texas circle. The thing is going to track back to this pro-Cuban guy named Heidel, who bought the gun, who, as Oswald worked in the book department, Cuba did this to you, Mr. Kennedy. Are you going to let him get away with it? No. We're going to bomb the hell out of him. We're going to bomb him back into the Stone Age. We gave him chances. One too many. I don't get mad. I get even. And at the end of the day, Oswald would have been, in this fairy tale, Oswald would have been emerged as a hero because, you know, we would have taken care of Cuba and he was the guy that made it happen. And while he's doing his part, other people pulled the triggers and all of a sudden he heard sirens. And as you saw in, in Olive Stone's movie, Roy truly comes running up and says, president's been shot. Do you remember that scene? Yes. Okay, here's the, here's the classic question about that scene. What would have happened if truly didn't recognize that guy? Yeah. When the cop says, does he work here? Yeah, president's been shot. What if the guy didn't work there? Nobody's ever asked that question. That's an obvious question, and you're right, no one's ever asked it. Um, because those are the ones that never get asked. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's like Noah's Ark. We don't know which animals didn't get there because they didn't get there. Right. Um, and it's like that historian st- story we talked about. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I, I don't think he was in, in any kind of abort mission because the easiest thing to do would have been run out in the road screaming. That's all you would have had to do. Right. I mean, that, that's the easiest thing in the world to abort. Secret Service would have been all over Kennedy, halfway up Houston Street. End of story. Uh, as far as mind control goes, I'm not sure. I'm not convinced that mind control was that far advanced at that point in time. In Hollywood, sure. But in reality, I don't know. Because they were still playing with LSD and seeing what it would do. Right, right. At that time. And yeah. LSD was legal at that time until 1967. Well, I think they may have gotten it right with Sirhan. <laughs> they may have. Uh, but A little again, real hypno. five years later, yeah. and it, it's close in. Yeah. Uh, and I, Sirhan didn't kill him. No. Not, not when 12 witnesses say he was in front of Bobby at all times. Five feet away, and the shot was fired from an inch and a half. Yeah, and we have those recordings, at least I 12 have, shots. I held both of those guns at the same moment. Really? The Ivor the Johnson. The gun and the Thane Caesar gun, yeah. The eight-shot Ivor yep. Johnson. eight-shot Iverson that fired 14 bullets. Yeah. Have you talked to Rosie Greer? No. Oh, because I mean... No, Jerry Ray. Okay. And I've, I've got a connection, possibly, to Sirhan, but 
my interest is John Kennedy. Yeah. Not 9-11. Yeah. Not Bo- I met what? Bobby Kennedy. You did? And, uh, what a man. I mean, it was two, three minutes, and there was only three of us together. One of his staff, him, and me. And I swear he was nine feet tall, and I was battered with waves of energy. You know, I was take. I, I've been. I took a little heat for this. I mean, not my era. I'm, I'm 47. So, but I, I, based on what I read and everything I, that I know, I think, given the chance, Bobby might have been a greater president than John F. Kennedy. Absolutely, absolutely, because he he had more concrete issues that he could deal with immediately, and the public was far more energized in 1968 than they were in 1961. Yeah. Um, uh, let's go back yeah, to Jack. Absolutely. Let's go back to Jack. Uh, shooters, how many and where do you think they were? My strongest suspicion is that there was at least one at the opposite end of the book depository. Because if you, next time you watch a Zapruder film, watch John Kenneth Connolly after Kennedy is hit in the head. Connolly is shot a second time after Kennedy is hit in the head. When you see Kennedy driven back, count to one, and you'll see Connolly driven forward onto the floor. Mm. And it's it's he's in shock, so it's not like he's reacting to any kind of stimulus except a bullet, the energy of a bullet. Yeah, he's saying to myself, hey, it wasn't supposed to happen this way. Because he, he's holding on to that hat long after he was shot with the magic bullet. And that the magic bullet severed the nerve that would have allowed him to hold the hat. Right. Uh, and of course, I, you're not going to do an assassination like that from one location. Triangulation. Gotta, yeah, to some extent, triangulation. Uh, people have said, you know, the second floor window at a Daltex building, you can't see your target from there because it's going downhill. But the other thing people don't realize. Dealey Plaza, it goes downhill. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a ski slope, but it's downhill. Right. And the Secret Service car, which was 10 inches higher than the President's car, is up above it, and there's guys standing up on the sides, and there's guys sitting up on the top back seats. You would have had to be on the fifth floor of the Daltex building. So that open window by the fire escape that people have believed in for years, it's a fairy tale. Uh, somewhere up high. And the shot that that is under so much discussion, entered below where it exited. It was rising when it went through his body, according to the House Select Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <laughs> given that, the only way it could have hit Connolly was if Kennedy had been tying his shoes. <laughs> because the bullet was rising. It would have gone out, sailing out over the car somewhere. Right. Um, you know, I mean... There's a thousand theories. Mrs. Kennedy stabbed him in the neck with the roses. She shot him. Right. You know, the the driver of the car shot him. Right. He was Annie Oakley. Um, You know, sooner or later, you have to get back to fact-based stuff. What about Giancana's men, Nicoletti, and others? I think they knew who, but I don't think they did it. Okay. Simply Simply because there was too much at risk. And and I will... When you say, well, which group? I think it was, I think groups, plural, circled the wagons. Right. And right. someone in there reached out to LBJ and said, can we do this? Yeah, do just give ha- me. Do you have our back? And he said, yes. 
Just give me plausible deniability. And then supposedly he told his mistress the next day after tonight that SOB will never embarrass me again. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I've spent time with her. But her story underwent an evolution that, I don't know. She's always maintained that part of the story. Right. But how many people were there in 1993? And I've got her on tape. She told me there was eight men there. Right before she died, there was 40 including people who never would have been there. There you go. Hey, in a thousand years. It's like how many people were at the, uh, you know, when the Giants won the pennant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> listen, we're going to save a lot of this for the uh, the 49th anniversary. I can see... There are still six million people alive that were at that game. There you go. Uh, Walt Brown, editor of JFK Deep Politics Quarterly and the big Lollapalooza... Um, uh, Master Analytical Chronology. Yeah. Excellent. Look forward to that. And uh, let's speak next year, next uh, next November, Walt. Absolutely. Thanks for this. Real pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Was Lyndon Baines Johnson the real architect of the JFK assassination? Find out next. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. AM 740. Philip F. Nelson was in college during the presidency of Lyndon Baines Johnson. And here to talk about his new book, LBJ, The Mastermind of the JFK Assassination, is Philip F. Nelson. Philip, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Richard. The pleasure is mine. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, take me back to those heady days uh, of the, uh, the mid uh, 1960s, you're in college. What were your impressions of of LBJ at that time? Well, you know, I had um, suspicions about his motives even before the assassination because of all of the scandals that seemed to surround him uh, throughout that period of his vice presidency. There was, of course, the TFX scandal that that just kept popping up from time to time never did get resolved, at least back then. I think we know what happened now. Um, and, you know, eventually we, we found out that he was in, indeed behind um, this change in the government position that the government was, was going to uh, give the award to Boeing Corporation. And after three tries, attempts at, at trying to get it shifted over to um, uh, General Dynamics and other and some other partner comp- companies, they finally managed to do that, and for that he he received a one hundred thousand dollar payoff. Um, that's all documented in the book. But beyond that, there was there was the very troubling Billy Celestis affair that was unraveling all during the um, JFK presidency. You know, with um, Johnson continuing. You know his his involvement with um, these world class criminals. So, and during the period of 1961 into 62, uh, it 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 really was uh, festering underneath. And it, but it hit the all the newspapers, all the magazines throughout the country in the spring of 1962, and it seemed all the arrows seemed to point right at, at uh, London Johnson. And, and the, the most troubling aspect of that was the um, murders of a number of people. 
it, so it wasn't just a financial scandal. It wasn't just that Johnson was setting up the apparatus for, for which his, his good uh, friend and you know, partner in crime was able to bilk the government you know, out of millions and millions of dollars. It was, it was the fact that there were four people who were murdered during that period of time of course, was the most troubling of all this. I've Nothing heard... was ever penned on, on Linda Johnson, but he was the only one who benefited from... Uh, well, he was in the unique position to have benefited from those four murders as well as a number of other murders. There were a number of um, people, obviously, that were concerned about LBJ uh, being named uh, Jack Kennedy's vice presidential uh, candidate. What... It, it does, on the surface, seem to be a very odd pairing. Not that Jack Kennedy was was you know Lily White, but at the same time, uh, I mean, there was no love lost between those two. Why why did Jack Kennedy choose LBJ for his vice president? I think there's no question uh, now that uh, JFK was was uh, forced through uh, incriminating files obtained by Jagger Hoover. Who Jagger Hoover, by the way, was a longtime friend and neighbor. They, they lived right across the street from each other for almost 20 years, and they were of similar, you know, mindsets when it, when it came to, you know, uh, expediencies regarding getting things done. You know, uh, bending a few rules here and there, and and uh, so they, I can imagine they got along quite famously. And well, it's a uh, it's a matter of fact that they they did. They were friends, and um, you know, among among other people, they um, in the same little community. By the way, I've driven through there. It's in right off of um, well, not too far from Connecticut Avenue uh, or Massachusetts Avenue, and in Georgetown. And they're older homes now, of course, but they lived right across the street from each other. And within that same, within a block of that. You had these major lobbyists like Fred Black and a guy named Irving Davidson. You had Bobby Baker. He, Bobby Baker, by the way, was the third one of these uh, series of scandals that uh, Johnson was absorbed in uh, back in the 60s, back in 62 and 63. Um, anyway, all of that was sort of out there in the background. But it, yeah. it, it, it did serve a certain purpose. Obviously, uh, Kennedy uh, was reviled in, in Texas. He needed to take Texas. Johnson would help him do that. Also, better to have, as you point out in your book, uh, Kennedy pointed this out to, to, um, to somebody, it was, it was better to have uh, LBJ uh, under his nose uh, as vice president than to be Senate majority leader where he could do a great deal of damage. Well, that was the, the stock line that both he and, and Bobby Kennedy took uh, subsequent to, to the events. But, but my book, and, re, and it references a number of other books on the subject, I think clearly shows that, that um, Johnson was not even on the long list of Kennedy uh, nominees, you know, potential nominees, much less the short list. He was not on any list because... JFK had no intention of um, naming him the vice president up until the uh, evening of July 14th, 1960. And it was then that, now I should back up just a second here to say that 
there's something I want to preface all this with, and that is, you know, the uh, the, nor- the his- historians seem to glance over all this, but the fact is that Johnson d- did not even declare himself a candidate until five days before the Democratic convention, even though he had he had set up Texas legislation two years before that in 1958 to allow him to run both for his Senate seat because it was coming, it was expiring in 1960, and either the presidency or the vice presidency at the same time. And then whichever one he won, I mean, obviously if he won one of the, the national contests, he would take that. But, it, but he didn't want to risk the, the possibility of losing his, his uh, Senate seat for doing so. so. So this shows that he, it was his intent to run in some capacity as early as 1958. However, he bypassed all of the primaries and and rarely ventured out of Washington. He he thought, and it's been said that that he thought that uh, that if you know he could win the nomination just through the smoke-filled back rooms, through elbowing and pressuring other congressmen and uh, senators to. Uh, well, that bullying, that bullying tactic certainly had served him well, and he had this oceanic-sized ego uh, that perhaps he was able to convince himself that he could, he could do that. Philip Nelson is my guest, the author of LBJ, The Mastermind of the JFK Assassination. We'll take a quick time out back on the other side with more of our conversation. Stay with us. You're listening to AM740, Zoomer Radio. Don't go away. Where there's smoke... There's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And we are back with Philip F. Nelson, author of LBJ, The Mastermind of the JFK Assassination. Uh, let's let's uh, go to November 22nd, 1963, and um, uh, the some of the interesting events leading up to the, the assassination... Uh, can you verify uh, any of these these um, legends, I guess? One, that LBJ had actually, I guess in a sort of a twisted sense of chivalry, had tried to convince JFK that Jackie Kennedy should ride with him, not in the, pre- not in the presidential limo. Yes, yes, that's absolutely. In fact, you can see that for yourself on YouTube. There's a a uh, video out there. I don't remember exactly the title, but um, anyway, it it is of George Smathers, Senator George Smathers, one of JFK's best friends, who who um, stated on video that that LBJ was was pressing him to to make this Texas trip. This is only a week before. This is the one week before that that trip was made, and and they're riding back from Florida. For a, uh, for a different appearance that, that Kennedy had made down there. And they're on Air Force One, and Senator Smathers is with him, and, and JFK um, became, I guess his, his mood sort of shifted to, to one of dread, that, that he really did not, he didn't want to make that trip. And he had LBJ even wanting to, to have um, Jackie ride with him and then it became he also wanted John Connolly then to ride with him. At at one point he even 
mentioned him writing he LBJ writing with JFK, but but he should have known that that never happens. I mean, it, it was very unusual that they they would be in open cars in the same motor motorcade with within uh, you know two car lengths or with with only one car se- separating them. Uh, but he was doing that. I'm not sure why, but I believe that he had he he may have had um, uh, he may be he may have d- deluded himself. Let's put it that way. That uh, that he might he might like to to um, become friendlier with with Jackie. I, I'm not sure why he he used that, but. Well, if he anyway, knew that if he knew that there was an there was a hit going to happen, it was, there was an assassination about to take place, and he wanted to save spare Jackie from that whore. And then you're right; maybe he thought he was able to against again in his delusional mind to convince himself that uh, he could, you know, swoop in there the the night on shining armor and take advantage of this vulnerable uh, woman who just lost her husband. Well, I wouldn't put it past him. Let's put it that way. He he um, he did a number of things with with other women. I don't know if you want to get into all that right now, but uh, that is c- completely consistent with, with his um, his track record. And and so it wouldn't wouldn't surprise me at all. But what I was getting at a second ago was that that Johnson I mean that uh, Kennedy also told told Smathers that, that he he just didn't want to go to, to on this trip. You know, he he's, he was um, you know, he said I I wish I hadn't committed to it but but I did, and so therefore I must. And you know, so it, it's evidence that that Johnson was pressing Kennedy all that time for for over a year to, to make this trip into Texas. K- Kennedy had resisted, but he he finally went along with it. And and once he made the commitment, I guess he felt he had to fulfill it, even though a week before he was telling his best friend that he wished he didn't have to make that trip. Now later. In fact, just a few years later, in 1967, he had Connolly write a big spiel for Life magazine on the anniversary. I think it was the third or fourth anniversary of the assassination. And, and the whole, the whole um, thrust of that article, written by Connolly, his buddy, was all about how Kennedy had been pressing them to make that trip into Texas, not ah, the other way around. Interesting. But but this is just one of of many many lies that Johnson would plant, because he knew that that you know given the right um, conditioning and uh, the right nurturing that, that all of those lies would re, would replace the truth. You see and. And I, I have a whole list of them if you want me to go through them. But well, we, that, yes. that, that was just one of them. Well, let's yeah, let's do that. But before we do, let me let me start with with something uh, uh, also crucial to the the presidential motorcade, and that is the idea that that uh, uh, Kennedy's car was initially to have some sort of a sort of a bubble over top of it. Was it not? Well, that it's it's unclear that that it was always the plan to have the bubble on there. However, we, we, we know that, that Johnson, through Bill Moyers of all people, had ordered that bubble to be removed unless it was, quote, pouring rain. And, and I'm not sure if you want me to use these words on the radio, but, but uh, Bill Moyers is quoted in, in um, the HSCA committee uh, documents. The That's files. the House Select Committee on Assassinations that, that happened in 1978, I think. That's right, exactly. Get that GD 
bubble bubble off of there unless it is pouring rain. And and he Moyers is screaming this at his assistant. I think her name was Betty Harris. Um, who now you have to understand Moyers was down in Austin. He was doing advance work for the supposed trip on on, on down there later. This, this is Bill Moyers of PBS fame, who was was Johnson's press secretary. Well, he he got to be his press secretary at a later date. Yes. Well, right after that, I guess uh, he he started assuming those duties. But, but why would at Bill that Moyers? Point in time, he, he was he was with the uh, Peace Corps, I believe. But why would Bill Moyers be issuing those orders? And why would he, why would even LBJ through Bill Moyers have the authority to order that bubble off of the car? Well, because. Johnson had taken over all of the planning for the Dallas segment of these of these three trips. In other words, they went to San Antonio first, and then they stopped back in, in Houston the night before for a dinner, and then they flew up to Fort Worth, and then on over the next morning to, to Dallas. And of all those trips, it was only the Dallas trip that Johnson took direct control of. He, he was the one who made the decisions, or he or his people. So he had all of his people. We're talking about Bill Moyers, Cliff Carter, um, a fellow named Jack Puderbaugh, uh, and well, a, f- a few others I can't uh, remember. But those are the, the most important of the of, of all of his men that he had basically assigned different tasks. Okay, and and it, but but they all pertained only to the Dallas motorcade. None to Houston, none to San Antonio. He, had, he he deferred that to the regular staff who did these things, but he took over all the all the decision making and basically acting through or working through his his uh, cohorts. He he was the one who got the um, the luncheon scheduled for the trademark instead of the women's building, and he was the one who decided based essentially that uh, on the motorcade route that they had to make this idiotic jog down there, and, and which is a 120-degree turn that required that car to slow down to, uh, you know, two or three miles an hour because it was uh, such a long car. Off Houston onto Elm. barely made it around that turn off of Houston, hitting, off of Houston, the curb. Off of Houston onto Elm. Yes. Right. Uh, so all of those things were set up by Johnson's men. And as far as the bubble top goes, uh, it... You know, as luck would have it, I guess. Um, well, the good, the good, the good fortune for Johnson and the misfortune of Kennedy. The rain stopped about 10 o'clock that morning, 10:30 in the morning. It had been raining before, but by 11:30, when when they all arrived at Love Field, the rain had basically stopped. It was it was starting to clear, and so they went ahead and removed that bubble top. Now, and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Philip. Is is there also any? I've heard um, stories that LBJ was seen in the uh, in his car in the motorcade on a walkie-talkie just moments before the uh, the, the fatal shots were fired, and then seen ducking down. Uh, again, any 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 way of substantiating that? Well, yeah. So much of that was substantiated through. Um, one of the first accounts of the first major book uh, written on the assassination, and that was by William Manchester. 
and and there were there is a lot of of uh, information in that book, and I I would urge anybody who hasn't read it yet to read it because all all one needs to do is read between a few lines to see what Manchester was really telling us even back then in 1967. Uh, that that right there is, a, is just a ama- I could talk all at the rest of this hour or whatever just on that point and I, I don't want to do that but um, yes he he indicated that that Johnson had regularly hunched down he used those words to, uh, during the trip at different different points along the uh, motorcade route because he was pretending to listen to an to an AM radio broadcast that was in the of ra- from the radio, obviously, in the front seat of the car. So that gave him an excuse to kind of hunch down and, and uh, put his head down in between the, the seats or right close to the seat back. And and he did this, you know, on and off again all throughout the um, the, the motorcade. So that by the, time, by the time he got to the intersection of Elm Street from Houston Street, he was basically hunching down so so much that he was well at that point according to senator yarborough who was riding with him in the same car he had begun listening to a walkie-talkie sharing this walkie-talkie uh mechanism with uh, jack youngblood who was the secret service agent in the in the uh, front seat and and uh, they were talking real low according to Senator Yarborough. So he couldn't even hear what was going on. But at that point, even before the car reached that intersection, Johnson had made sure that he was out of, out of um, gunshot, I guess. Uh, he, he, was an, he, he had to know what was happening, in my mind. And um, he was simply taking action all along to, to condition everybody in the car with him to, to the fact that he was you know, preoccupied with other things and um, basically listening to a radio and then when we got they got to the intersection to this walkie-talkie all right we'll take another time out and then back on the other side more of my conversation with philip f nelson author of lbj the mastermind of the jfk assassination as we commemorate the 48th anniversary of the murder of jfk the coup d'etat that took place on november 22nd 1963 you're listening to the conspiracy show my name is richard serrett don't go away where there's smoke there's the conspiracy show with richard serrett from zoomer radio am 740. we're back with philip f nelson author of lbj the mastermind of the jfk assassination and uh i've got this uh, hefty tome in my hands right now. Uh, this is, uh, how long did, did it take you to piece this, this, this together? We're talking about including uh, the index, 636 pages. Okay, that is the first edition of the book, which I self-published in, uh, well, it came out July 27th of 2010, which was, whatever, a year and a half ago. Um, not quite a year and a half ago. That book, um, there were, I, I suppose, 4,000, 4,500 copies of it made in various forms. And since then, that has been taken off the market, and it's been replaced by a new book, which is being introduced by the new publisher, Skyhorse. 
on uh, November the 22nd, two days from now. And it, um, it's been re-edited by Skyhorse, I think very effectively, because it, it uh, refocuses on just the events related to and preceding and following the assassination. In, in the original book, I had tended to drift off into other things, especially in the epilogue. Uh, that, that were unrelated to the assassination, but they were there to try to illustrate um, different aspects of Johnson's character and, and, and what, um, what, well, all the flaws that he had. He had more than his share of flaws, uh, both from a psychiatric as well as a psychological uh, standpoint. And, and a than in his sociopathic personality. I guess that's somewhere... Let me just pick up on that for a second. That's interesting. Is I've heard him des- described as the ultimate sociopath or even a, the ultimate psychopath, and we can get into more details later, but you mentioned Bill Moyers and, and, and Cliff Carter. Did, did not both of them actually approach a psychologist to get some insight into who would be their, their boss? Well, yes, they, uh, they certainly did. No, well, I, I should say this. It was Bill Moyers and Richard Goodwin, not, not Cliff Carter. Cliff Carter, in 1971, after, you know, it was all over, and he, he, he went, he went to, down to Texas, and he met with Billy Solestis and some other people who, who witnessed all this. And, and they were all commiserating about all these crimes that had been committed, and including murders. And according to Cliff Carter, there were 17 of them. Now, Cliff Carter was probably the most devoted, well, along with um, Johnson's own personal hitman, his name was Mac Wallace, um, they were obviously not just devoted to him, they were almost married to him because there was no way that they could leave him. Mysteriously, in 1971, uh, both Cliff Carter and Mac Wallace died in, in very strange ways. One, Mac Wallace was involved in a one-car accident uh, and um, so whatever but, but there were signs that that his brake lines had, had been had been cut uh, or his steering mechanism was also altered this is almost a brand new car he was driving by the way and in the case of Cliff Carter he he died of pneumonia in a Washington DC hospital and according to Penn Jones you know, it was all for lack of a penicillin shot. And here he is in D.C. Mm. Um, anyway, the, the, the point that you raised referred to Bill Moyers and Richard Goodwin. Now, now Bill Moyers, <coughs> uh, yes, d- did say some, some things that um, indicated that Johnson, Johnson's mental health was... Um, not too good during his presidency. And also Richard Goodwin in in his book, Remembering America, printed in 1988, took that one step further. And I'm going to, if you want me to, I can uh, quickly find that and and tell you some of the things that both of of these fellows who worked with with Johnson for, for many, many years, well, for Let's put it this way. They started working for Johnson again in 1963, shortly after that, because Johnson had gone to every one of JFK's men and, and asked them, or, or he would say, I need you more than he needed you. 
And he used that same line over and over and over again with every one of them. So just about all of them, feeling, I guess, a sense of, you know, um, patriotism or, or commitment or whatever, would, um, would comply, except for one guy, Pierre Salinger. Ah, uh, yes. He, he did that initially, but only for a, about three months, and then he left. Uh, he found another job on the West Coast, and I believe it was because he didn't want to be anywhere near Lyndon Johnson. But getting back to your, your question, here's what Bill Moyers uh, said uh, about Johnson's mood. He, he said, and this is a quote, he would just go within himself, just disappear, morose, self-pitying, angry, while lying in bed with the covers pulled over his head. Um, pulled over his head. The president said that he felt he was in a Louisiana swamp getting sucked under. Richard Goodwin then said in that book in 1988, um, re and this is all regarding the time in 1966, that both he and Bill Moyers independently sought advice from psychiatrists, not knowing that the other was doing the same thing. He said, we were describing a textbook case of paranoid disintegration, the eruption of long-suppressed irrationalities. The disintegration could continue, remain constant, or recede, depending on the strength of Johnson's resistance. So, yeah, I believe that they realized what was going on in 1966, and that, I believe, explains in part why they both resigned at the end of 1966. Let me, uh, before we take a time out, uh, just get a quick comment from you about uh, much has been written uh, about um, uh, Johnson's mistress, Madeline Duncan Brown, and her uh, testimony or, or account of a meeting that took place the night before the 22nd, uh, which involved Johnson and uh, um, uh, other notables that we can get into. What, what is your take on, on the testimony or, or the account of Madeline Duncan Brown? Okay, let me say that I have talked to I don't know how many people who have told me, and I'm, I'm talking about very credible, very grounded people have told me that they believe her, that, that um, she did not you know, make all this up or anything, that that, that meeting happened and that, in fact, she had this 21-year affair with Johnson that pr produced a, a son, and and that um, you know they they were an item for all that all that period from uh, from 1948 to about 1960. Uh, I want to say 1969. All right, we'll take a time out. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about Madeline Duncan Brown and, and what supposedly LBJ told her after that meeting about Jack Kennedy. Back with more of my conversation with Philip Nelson, author of LBJ, The Mastermind of the JFK Assassination. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show, right here exclusively on AM740 Zuma Radio. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zuma Radio, AM 740. All right, uh, Philip, uh, the big question. Um, to what extent was, was LBJ involved? I mean, he, he may have been, was he, was he orchestrating it? Uh, was he taking orders from someone else? How culpable was he? I, I believe that, you know, it's, it's never going to be possible to, to determine now who first whispered into who, 
whomever's ear that something really needs to be done here. But I believe that what I've tried to demonstrate in the book is that Johnson's planning had begun as early as 1958 and 1959 and forcing himself into the vice presidency. The only man ever on record is, is ever doing that. I mean, it's always there as a second place for someone who tried to become president. But I don't believe Johnson thought that he could really win on the presidential ticket. That, that the only, as a southerner, uh, a very regional person at that, in other words, he, he had no following throughout the rest of the country. So that Johnson, I mean, pardon me, uh, John Kennedy did travel the whole country in, in his efforts to become uh, the presidential nominee. And Johnson sat back in Washington and let him do that. I'll, and he yeah, I'll told, hitch my wagon to his star. Exactly. He, he wanted to be on the ticket as the vice presidential uh, candidate because he knew that his ego could not take the crushing of a defeat if he was on the top of the ticket. And that would put him, that, 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 would, that would eliminate him forever from ever running again if, if he lost as the presidential nominee. But if he lost as the vice presidential nominee, he could always maybe, uh, you know, orchestrate another comeback. And I, I believe that because he, he started his planning that early and then followed it up by not even really running for the presidency, a very, a very passive run at that. But then after, after Kennedy was selected, Johnson called him and wanted to meet with him immediately thereafter. And, and now whether that, was, that original call was from him or Sam Rayburn really doesn't matter. It was both of them trying to get uh, Johnson's name on the ticket as the vice presidential nomination, even though Kennedy had already se selected and sent word to Senator S Symington of Missouri that he was going to be the uh, vice presidential nominee. And because they, because uh, Symington was very popular in California, and they they wouldn't even need Texas if they could carry California. Okay. Good point. Well, they the, the way it turned out is they lost California. They won Texas, but they only won Texas because of major voter fraud. Right. A hundred thousand, but it's been estimated, and this was in the newspapers at the time I've cited. It was estimated that there were up to one hundred thousand bogus votes tabulated in Texas in that in that election. That's LBJ's That's political machine the ones that at work. Were done up in Illinois. Right. Uh, so, so the the point is that that, that Johnson wanted to, to be there so that he he could move into the Oval Office uh, at a later date to be determined, so to speak. But he didn't do all this just so he could become president. Obviously, he had people behind him, people willing to help, and they all had their motives. Oh yes, yes, and 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 he knew that he would have to to work on all of these other people. And now, whether he was the first or, or someone else. Uh, came along with him immediately, you know, we'll never know that. But I, I believe that he positioned himself there for that very purpose. And right in the middle of all these other groups, in fact, he was uniquely connected to all of these other groups that I referred to, the Eastern Establishment, what is called the Georgetown crowd, the FBI, the Secret Service, the military, the mafia, the sweet 8F people, that's the oil men down in, down in Texas, and of course, the CIA. The oil people wanted him dead because he was going to do what with the oil depletion tax? 
Well, K- Kennedy had already come out and uh, denounced it and 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 uh, put it on his agenda that it would be uh, w- you know withdrawn or uh, whatever it would be. What would that whatever. have? What would that? What would that have meant to the oil industry if he if he had proceeded? Well, it's been estimated that they would have lost three hundred eighty million dollars a year in in uh, the tax breaks that, that they were getting. It, it effectively took the first twenty seven and a half percent of their oil revenue and put it out of bounds. In other words, that it was not taxable. Mm. Period. So that was tax free. Uh, it it is interesting that the only that. That only applied at that time to the oil industry. You know, no other form of mining or farming or fishing, commercial fishing, nothing else. Right. But but it's all because they had the better lobbyists at that. You know, back in those days, and they still do, I guess. And 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 uh, the the military industrial complex, or let's say the military uh, specifically, um, Kennedy's uh, decision that you know not to put U.S. troops in Vietnam. Uh, that obviously did not go over well with you know the people at Bell Helicopter. Oh, that's right. I mean, it, it was it was obviously in 1963 that that Kennedy's um, you know anti-communist vigor that he had during the 1960 election, you know, and running against Nixon, he, he sort of had to, you, you know. Uh, that um, that had sort of been superseded by 1963, and here he was making peace speeches and and at american university in june of 63 he was advancing a nuclear uh test ban treaty you know sort of through the back channels with khrushchev and that really torqued everybody off and and uh, the pentagon and at langley and all over washington i guess (laughs) because it just didn't go over well they he, he was doing a number of things that had them very upset and also some of some of the things that Kennedy was doing on the side was some of his lady friends. Mm. I believe that Johnson was leveraging that as well to to all these people to, uh, on the basis that you know he he is having liaisons with with people with women who are suspected communists and and well and then there was the mobster mall Sam Sam Giancana's uh, girlfriend that uh, was being shared by the two of them. You know, these kinds of indiscretions, you know, would ordinarily just be simple personal indiscretions. But I, I believe that, that there was a great effort going, going into convincing everybody that, that this had become a national security issue and he had to be dealt with. Interesting. Listen. And that we, we, we could not afford the risk of, of um, blackmail or anything of that sort. Uh, and that that was just part of the mix, though. That that was that was one significant part. Sure. But there were many many other issues that brought them all together. Final question about LBJ. You know, here was a guy in, in, in I guess in the Senate in 1957 who did more to help you know blacks get to the voting booths. Uh, when he became um, a, a president, it, that's when you know NASA really took off and we landed a man on the moon. Uh, he was the one that. That passed a great deal of of, uh, of uh, civil rights legislation, uh, and, and and I'm wondering, you know, is it possible that sometimes a really bad man can come to power uh, for good for good, you know, a good end, a good ending? I, I think I need to correct 
that, or clarify it at least. I'm not sure exactly what what your uh, point was, but let me just say this. Since Johnson went to Congress in 1937 until 1963, that, that is 26 years. For 26 years, he fought against meaningful civil rights reform. Yes, and then he, did a, he sort of did it this about-face, did he not? He Yes, he did the about-face, you know, the day after Kennedy was killed. And and then suddenly he was he was trying to bring everybody together to get this legislation passed and he did so quite effectively. But it was not to advance you know the minorities or it, it was all for his own legacy. He he knew and he even told people at the time that that he would have the uh, well let's just say black vote. He didn't use that term. No. But the, he, he would ensure the black vote for the Democratic um, Party for the next 200 years. Well, you know, he, he, all of this was not done for altruistic reasons. He, as I started to say, for 26 years, he, he uh, su- supported the poll tax for, right. the, that the southern states were using. Voters had to pay a, well, a buck 75 or something every time they went to vote. And and he continued supporting the state's rights to do that, you know, against any meaningful uh, civil rights reform. In the in the bill of 1957, the 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 black head of the uh, conductors union, the railroad, you know, uh, right. A. Philip Randolph was his name. He said that that 1957 legislation was worse than nothing. That it had no no meaningful teeth to it. Mm. There was no way to enforce anything. It was all going to, to be settled by local juries. So the juries in Mississippi, for example, you know, were all, well, white and not, you know, very empathetic to the, the, the situation with black folks down there. Right, there and you go. So not, not for altruistic know, he, he reasons. He took a lot of credit for that 1957 law that right. everyone else, the uniform opinion seems to be, it was it was meaningless. There you go. Well, thank you for, for setting that record straight. I mean, it, for a lot of people, it does seem kind of a contradiction. Uh, you know, if, if in fact he was behind JFK's assassination, why did he go on to do all these other things? But I think you've you've explained that quite nicely, that these were for self-serving means, and they certainly Every, didn't reflect his, his personal feelings on the subject. Everything that Johnson did, and this came from, this comes from Robert Caro, the, the most prolific, the, the in fact, that I would argue the best biographer of Lyndon Johnson. He, he quoted, it was, it was an unnamed, because the guy didn't want to put his name out there, but, but what he said was, Lyndon Johnson believed in nothing, nothing but his own ambition. And there was nothing that could, you know, come before that. Well, that's a, I don't that's have a, the exact quote, but that's the essence of it. Well, and that is the essence of it, and that's a great way to end it. And uh, again, congratulations on this major work, LBJ, the mastermind of the JFK assassination, which will be released uh, by Skyhorse. Yes, Skyhorse Publishing in on November days. 22nd. In just two days. Terrific. All right. We'll look forward to that. Philip Nelson, thank you for this. Thank you very much. The pleasure was mine. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed our JFK assassination uh, edition of The Conspiracy Show 48 years ago. Uh, Well, in just 
less than 48 hours from now, we'll uh, mark the 48th anniversary. And uh, you know what? Uh, I think we're getting closer to, 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 uh, to connecting the dots and putting the pieces together and really finding out what happened. Although uh, it won't be embraced necessarily by the, uh, the mainstream uh, uh, media um, and so forth, but I think we'll know uh, deep in our hearts what really happened on that day. All right, uh, back next week, and in my stead, occupying the air chair, will be Victor Vigiani. So I hope you'll, uh, you'll tune in and, uh, and uh, call in, and uh, Victor promises to deliver an excellent show. I know one of the things he has planned is an interview with Dr. Jack Pruitt, uh, the author of The Grand Deception. So make sure you, uh, you join The Conspiracy Show as Victor Vigiani guest hosts. In the meantime... Don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.